What's shaking cats and kittens? Rob Lee here, and today's episode of The Truth In His Art is sponsored by a new online art platform called Fire and Bliss Creative. Fire and Bliss is the first art platform that I've seen that focuses on the art of the LGBTQ plus BIPOC and ally artists exclusively. And I have to say, the pieces are amazing. Whether you're looking specifically to add diverse art to your collection, or you have a space that needs a bit of updating, every single print on fireandbliss.com has been created by a diverse, independent artist who maintains full control over their art and their profit. I work with Fire and Bliss to curate a collection of my favorite pieces, like Somewhere Blue by Wodrich Francois. Shop my favorites at fireandbliss.com backslash truth and get 20% off your first purchase at Fire and Bliss. Again, that's fireandbliss.com backslash truth and use the code truth for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I am chatting with the founder and CEO of Baltimore-based Mason Dixie Foods, maker of a clean label, preservative-free, frozen scratch-made biscuits, scones, and sweet rolls. The goods can be found in more than 5,000 stores across the country, including several major retailers like Whole Foods. Please welcome Aisha Abulasha. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. Nice to be here. Uh, as you can probably tell, um, and nice to have you, as you can probably tell, I copied and pasted that from a website. And <laughs> so with that being said, I always like to invite the guest on to really say, say their piece, how, how you describe it, describe your work and that moment that you knew you wanted to risk it for the, for the biscuit. I was really, <laughs> you know, I was going to do it. So I love it. Hey, it's, it's that tagline has stuck. So I'm here for it. Um, so, you know, it was an accidental journey to this world. I am um, kind of to back it up a little bit. I, I started out in the food and beverage industry to put myself through college. My parents were both immigrants, both um, my mom from Korea, my dad from Israel. And um, they came to be more to start a life. Yeah. And they used to own a carryout restaurant um, up in Charles Village. And I, when I was really little, I still remember like, seeing all kinds of people coming in and out of that place, right? It's construction workers, business people, homeless people, everybody's coming in and out of there, right? So, you know, I always thought it was crazy how that little shop was such a unifier. And really when I thought when as an adult, when I really thought about why and I really understood flavor and like tastes and like having an opinion about food, it was because it was down home comfort cooking, right? It was made from scratch by my mom and it was anything from collard greens to chitlins to, you know, ribs, whatever, right? Yeah. Who doesn't like that stuff? So, you know, I, it was kind of in my blood and I, I never really thought about it because my parents since day one, typical brown parents, you're going to go to college, you're going to become a lawyer, a doctor, you're going to be successful, you're not going to work hard as if like those jobs aren't hard. Right. <laughs> like in their minds, you don't work if you have those jobs. Um, but it wasn't really for me. Like I, I am a terrible liar and I um, am scared to death of blood. So, you know, they were not career paths for me. I ended up going to college, putting myself through school via um, scholarships and working in restaurants. I had no living spending money. Sure. Um, so I worked like three, four restaurant jobs at a time, like hustled. And it was kind of crazy because I was first to go to college. There wasn't really like, no one hands you a guide on how to do college, right? And especially if you're a first timer with no older siblings that have done it or even cousins, none of, none of my family had gone. I didn't know what to expect. So here I am, little blue collar girl, you know, 
and I grew up in Section 8 housing until I was 13. Oh. So being being dropped off into, I went to GW for school, into the middle of Washington, D.C. Um, with no money and being surrounded by really rich people who kind of figured out college really quickly. Right. So it was great to be in restaurants because it was almost like a safe space. It was a refuge because people were speaking four different languages, you know, you know, they, everyone was from everywhere, not just from DC or whatever. They're from all different walks of life and they're all hustling for that dollar. And I just, it was really comforting for me to find my people somewhere. Right. As I was being launched into this institutional education world. Um, And then, you know, I did launch my career 14 some odd years in tech and automotive and I climbed really quickly but I was just really unfulfilled and I didn't want to sit and wait for that C-seat position to pop up, you know, and be sitting in that desk for 20 years to wait for it, especially being a woman and a woman of color. Right. Like I wasn't going to wait for that. So I decided to step out on my own and the biscuit thing came about just because the Southern food element was what I was really thinking about. I was still in DC and all around me were all these concepts, sweet green, kava, five guys, you know, they were all coming up and, and pizza. I mean, all these guys. And I was just like, why can't I do that? Right. And why can't, mm-hmm. why are we eating crap fried chicken and biscuits from <laughs> Popeyes and Chick-fil-A with racists and homophobes and all these things. I'm like, there's gotta be something better than this. Right. So I, I set off on this comfort food journey. And then um, when I was really thinking about how to make it work, Panera was like, you know, still blowing up and they used to make their bread fresh back when they were still good. And they, that, that premise was like why why I thought about the biscuits. So I was like, oh, man. It took me back to when I was 10 years old, and my sisters asked me to make biscuits. And I made them for the first time out of a recipe I got at the public library. <laughs> I printed I printed that thing off on the, on the coffee machine. Do people even know what a coffee machine is anymore? I hope so. so. I took, I, you would hope, but you never know. Um, so then I, and I remember making the recipe and cutting it with a glass, and my sisters just loved it. And I just remember their smiles. So I was like, there's something about biscuits. And then I was like, man. It's a good vehicle for food. It's a good sandwich maker. It's a good side, you know, and it was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, this is going to be it. This is what I'm going to focus on. And I started, I'm not a chef by trade. Um, so I started out on the journey. I found a pastry chef to help me. And I was like, make me this biscuit, but better, right? <laughs> and don't use any crap ingredients because everything I'd sampled, like, right, I got a hold of the Cisco catalog and I was ordering and all the biscuits were crap. They weren't biscuits, right? They are oil wrapped in flour. And I was just like, this isn't, this can't be it. And so when it really kind of hit me was, it was like, okay, I am going to make the world a better place by making biscuits the way they're supposed to be made. Right. And that doesn't sound like anything special, but when I, when I launched the concept on Kickstarter, again, this was at a time when celebrity chefs were climbing, like chop was like the thing, you know, (laughs) like everybody was, you know, dabbling in like their food artistry. And all of these like fast casual concepts were really big venture backed or they were celebrity chef supported. Sure. And to make my name kind of sit or the brand Mason Dixie to sit, I was like, I need to get out on some kind of platform and get some eyes on this. So I launched it on Kickstarter before it was anything. Kickstarter back then was like 1-800-MY-IDEA with the guy with the caveman thing, right? Yeah. You send your invention in and you get money. So I was like, I'm just going to try it. There was one other restaurant on there and they successfully funded 20 grand or something. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And it wasn't about the money. We, we got the money. But it was every person, even if they gave a dollar, sent me a love note that just said, oh, my gosh, biscuits. That reminds me of my great-great-grandfather. This is my, this is my grandma who used to make. They would send me pictures. They sent me recipes. In fact, when we had the restaurant in D.C., the jam recipe yeah. was from one of our Kickstarter backers because she asked that to be her reward oh, wow. for when 
when we opened the restaurant. Yeah. So like it was deep, right? Like people were really emotionally connected to the idea of a biscuit. It's not just bread, right? It was something different. And that's when I was like, all right, now I have, I have a duty, like a God given duty now, because all these people have impressed upon me emotions and memories and thoughts that like are deeper than just damn that shit was good. Right. Like it was, it was like, it was heavy. Um, and then when I really started getting into it, when we started developing the menu and like what we were going to differentiate ourselves about, you know, I was shocked. We tried to buy um, antibiotic free chicken back then. This is like 2014. And that, that actually, there was one farm in all the East coast that supplied it. Now look at it, right? right. Like there's these things that now we take for granted that just weren't like we use cage-free, cage-free eggs. They were like, you couldn't even find those. We had to go to a farm. Like it was like those types of things were just not as prevalent. And I'm so glad the world's changing in that direction. But it had to start somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, we were part of that change. That's that's great. And I think, like, you know, I'm going to be asking redundant questions because you gave me the full thing. <laughs> and I, I appreciate it. And uh, and I think it's funny. I, I'd be remiss if I don't mention this. I, I feel like a, a fat POS because I feel like I've had a biscuit every day this year. Like, I mean, we're we're almost, wrong almost, with that? almost month three. And I feel like I've had a biscuit every day. But yeah, it's it's something that I start off the day with it. Right. Like instead of like coffee, I'll have coffee and a biscuit. And uh, why not? It's the best way to start things. And it is. And I and I, I appreciate, you know, your your frankness and that you want something that's quality. Right. Where. I'm a food snob. I, I'm unabashed food snob. And if I go to a place and they say, oh, we're doing the biscuits and gravy or we're doing uh, shrimp and grits. I'm like, where's the pork in the shrimp and grits? Oh, there's none? Oh, then that's not that's not shrimp and grits. I side-eye it. And, exactly. And when I see um, places that do really good biscuits, I'm going to keep buying from them and keep buying. Because it's like you guys are doing it right and it's not common. So I think it's really, really cool that you touched on that being a thing. Like I want quality in what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm attaching oh, my totally. name to. And that's totally. a very it's a very Baltimore thing too, because as you know, authenticity is a thing for us here. And yes. uh, if you come with that bullshit, we're gonna tell you. Look, that's why we moved our headquarters here. Because yeah. like, you know, being in DC, the only thing they sell is hot air. And you know, <laughs> I was really tired of it, right? Like I was I was tired of not being around a culture of makers. It's happening in DC now, but it's like no one's from there, so they're not ride or die about it, right? Yeah. So so there's no one to celebrate that with, right? Like where here, the second we came back, like I have people from kindergarten <laughs> reaching out and being like, oh my God, I went to kindergarten with her, right? And it's just like, that's so cool, right? Like it's, I'm here to buy with my toddler friends. Like, you know, like there, there's people that are rooting for you from the sidelines everywhere here, right? Absolutely. And they get so excited and so hyped to see your success that it really feeds the machine. And it also holds everyone here, you know, at headquarters accountable. Yeah. Right. To to your community and the people that are backing you every day. And it is. It's exactly that. It's authenticity is realness. And if it's not if look, if Baltimore says it's not good, then I'm sweating because that means it's shit. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I got to fix it. Yeah. And I and I think like um, here we, we do that. We do the question of what, what high school was it? What high school you go to? You know, it's one of those things because it's like I know you, you know, and. <laughs> And when I and when I saw like when I went through doing the research, I was like, "Oh, you're from here?" I was like, "Oh, yeah. okay, I definitely have to talk to you now because it was kind of one of those yeah. things of like, how do I make the connection?" Seeing the, you know, I'm one of those guys that would go to um, Whole Foods to get my Topo Chico all the time, yeah. and I was like, oh, "What's this? What's this Mason Dixie situation about?" We'll see. And realizing it's Baltimore, I was like, "Oh, okay, great." 
so so thinking back, right? Think back to your childhood a little bit. Um, describe like maybe one or two of those lessons that really stick out from your upbringing that you still apply to business today. Maybe more refined than it was in the onset, but it's like what is one of those lessons that you've gotten? One or two, rather. Yeah. So one. My dad was a princess maker. He was cursed. And um, I think blessed. He thought cursed. But, you know, he could see it two sides of the coin. Um, but he always used to say, you know, oh, I don't have any sons. So all of you guys need to think like boys. And I was like, dangerous thing, dad, because I will do it. You know, but but he said that in, the, in that he wanted us to be fearless. He wanted us to never think about being a woman as an adverse thing. And it's a bit strange because my dad was Palestinian and Israeli. So he, he was... Arab and you you don't really typically hear like things like that out of Arab men but he but he said you know like you you need to hold your ground if someone fights you you punch him back 10 times harder he was like don't let anyone tell you that you can't do anything that you think you really can do and if people don't like it you can tell them to shove it up their ass right and I was like okay that's what I'm gonna do so like literally I remember when I was like I think I was in second grade and you know back then I mean this was what in the early 90s and I, we, even though we were in Section Eight housing, it was right. Um, it, it was right on the cor- It was right on the cusp of the county, so we did end up going to a county school. Okay. But I, I was my, me and my sisters, and maybe two other girls were the only people of color in that entire school. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget some teacher of my second grade, second or first grade teacher. Um, I think he had low expectations for me because I wasn't white and she just thought I wasn't going to be able to read and write as well. And we had this activity where we had to um, do a book and we had to like make our own book with the cardboard and everything. And I did a whole series on a caterpillar going through metamorphosis <laughs> and she was like floored. Right. So she was like going around telling all these people like, Oh my God, look at this little girl and doing all these crazy things. Like that's amazing. Right. And I, she took me to who would be my fifth grade teacher, one of the best mentors I ever had in my life, Mrs. Love. And Mrs. Love said, what the hell are you doing with this poor baby girl taking her around like she's a piece of meat? And she was like, baby girl, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to do it, okay? And so she was like, she's like, you just tell her you don't want to do it. I was like, you're right. And you can shove it up your ass. Like, <laughs> That's great. They were just like, what the hell? So it was just like one of those moments where I, I was very confident very early about if I knew I was doing something right, I wasn't going to let anyone tell me that it was wrong. And I think to this day, that's been a principle that I abide by both in business and personally, yeah. right? Especially in trying times like these, like you got to stand your ground as hard as it can be. Sometimes got to tell people to shove it up their ass, but that's lesson one. <laughs> that's on the, um, the, on the autobiography. It's just on the jacket. <laughs> I dig it. Exactly. And then I'd say I learned, I learned really early on from my parents, both my parents, actually, um, the value of knowing what you eat, right? Because like, even when we were little, and we didn't have any money, we would still go to the farmer's markets and buy the bruised produce, right? Like, and my mom would can things like she was actually really masterly skilled in a lot of these things. And so she'll, they always used to say like, when we went to the regular grocery store, like if we went to a giant or whatever, they would always point to the produce section and say, we're never buying produce here. Those are for the donkeys, right? (laughs) Cause the cucumbers were like that big, right? And the eggplants were like this big. And they were like, they're not supposed to be like that. That's the trash and you shouldn't eat it cause something's wrong with it, right? right? And that has always stuck with me. Like to this day, I will not buy produce anywhere that is not organic, natural, or at a farm stand because I want to know where it's coming from. That's the most directly correlatable thing to something touching earth soil into your mouth, right? Yeah. And so for for 
I think that's really influenced too, like why this business means so much to me, because I feel blessed that I had that lesson. But in growing up in Section 8 housing, there were tons of other kids, you know, white, black, Latino, whatever, latchkey kids just like myself, but who didn't have parents. They were part of the system already. So they didn't have parents that told them the importance of what to shop for and not to eat out of a vending machine and that pizza isn't the best meal every meal a day. Like they, they didn't get those quality lessons. And then, you know, looking back now that we're back in Beemore and I do see some of the folks that I grew up with in first grade, they're still in the system. And when I think about it is because of you are what you eat and they didn't get those valuable lessons. So part of this is like, it's a lot to force communities to take up a new standard of, what health is and like to eat healthier and natural and all that stuff. So that's why I also think for Mason Dixie, it's so important that we push eating better still by eating the foods that you are naturally going to eat, right? Like you don't need to have a DiGiorno pizza when you could have a Roberta's pizza or you could have eat pizza, right? Like where the labels are cleaner. Right. And that's where, you know, for us, the premise is always familiar food done right. That's legit. That's super legit. I think it gets missed. And I I try to have these conversations with people on, hey, you can do this differently. Nah, this is the way I've always done it. It's like, that doesn't mean it was right. And there there are things that are uh, rolled over all the time. And uh, I come from a data background. And sometimes you put in bad stuff and you just roll it over and you just continue doing it. It's like, why? Why am I always sick? Because you're eating garbage. Correct. (laughs) So... I've read that diversity and uniqueness is not only baked into the food, but but the business as well. Why is it important to have diverse voices within the business? Well, if you look at the fabric of America, it's increasingly less white, right? So if you really <laughs> want to understand, <laughs> amen, right? um, but if you really want to understand your customer, your consumer, yeah. then you got to act like them. And that's an area where it's been totally remiss by big companies, right? They continue to market to the 1950s uh, census data and they continue to over, and there's studies that show it, they over-index marketing to white families because they're still operating on this old thought that America is still um, a very colonialized white society. When yeah. in reality, the Latino and African-American population is growing at such a rapid rate and they're so disconnected from that market base that they're actually, I think in grocery, they uh, there's a stat that got put out that it's about a missed opportunity that's totaled $17 billion. Wow. For that incremental piece that they're not marketing to. So, and it's not about business for me either. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you want to be around people that get you and that you're comfortable around, right? So you could be yourself and you could be 100% of yourself without putting up a facade or code switching or doing whatever you, like you, people don't understand how much time people of color have to waste mm-hmm. in their day to reformat who they are and how they need to speak and what they're so concerned about or not even in their business day, in their personal lives, right? Like the number of black women that need, feel the need to perm their hair straight to go to work, mm-hmm. Right. The number of Asians that want to look and act more white so they are accepted into white culture versus others. This is a this is a systemic issue that can't be fixed by more white leadership and more white thought leadership on what culture and how culture occurs. Culture only occurs if it's practicable every day. I agree. And for us, myself, I mean, my business partner is white, but he is a gay male. And that's also a whole different can of worms, right? And even though I'm not, 
I'm, I, I, I look Asian. I don't really think I am a hundred percent Asian every day. I really think of myself as American and I have friends of every color and every background. And I just always want to be around that vibe. I always joke to people. It's the difference between being on a Metro bus and a school bus <laughs> on the Metro bus. You sit around a bunch of people, all different face colors, everything, but you don't talk to them. You're just on the same damn bus, right? Yeah. That is how big corporate America treats diversity. Then you go on the Mason Dixie school bus and it's everybody knows each other like, hey, hey it's a party on the bus. you want a snack out of my backpack, right? It's a different vibe. And it's this, it, the bus looks the same on the inside, but it it's vibrant. Mm-hmm. It operates differently. The people are happier. That is what happens when you do culture right. So for us, it's been a really big part of our identities and fabric to make sure that this environment replicates the society we want to be a part of, right? Totally. I, I like, um, <laughs> I have that one observation. I, I've joked about it a few times, but I have this thing of, I don't talk to white people before nine or after five. Just, <laughs> it's like, I've done enough during a day. What more do you want from me? It's like, yo, right. I just want to get into backwards hat mode and just, <laughs> I just want to turn that's into a, a gimmick for the rest of the day. And that's the thing. Like, that's where you, that's the, that's the sentiment that people don't realize is exhausting. And I'm not saying that white people are intentionally doing it, right? They're, there's plenty of great people. They don't know that this is the feeling that we have. And it's, and it is hard because most people, most people of color don't actually realize they have this feeling until they realize how exhausted they are. Yeah. And it's, and it's the way that the structure and the system is put to kind of perpetuate that it's, it's, it's a continuance of that. Like going back yeah. to the, the point you were making about the census data showing like, you know, you're still marketing towards the 1950s and things like that. Office culture is very much the same way. And then when you see certain elements that, hey, guys, we'll throw you guys a bone. Hey, you know, AAPI. It's like, I don't I don't think anyone's using that. Or, hey, you know, Juneteenth. Like you guys want it like, you know, we're talking about reparations. Here's Juneteenth. Right. We're wearing a daishiki when we're doing it. It's like, no one asked for that. Like, no one ordered it. It's like, that's exactly. Exactly. It's comedy. And that's, it's, it's that, it is. But it's also, it's so contrived, too, because you're just like, have you just thought about listening actively? Yeah. Just saying, like, that's a good start. Because the second you can commiserate for real, for real, is the moment that these conversations don't need to happen anymore. And we're still not at that point. There's still not a place where people... White people can really accept that to be an ally, they really need to just shut up for a second. This is true. Right? And just listen and feel it as a human being. Right? Yeah. And that's that's the only – and it's crazy because obviously it's not just brown here. I mean, we got white folks here too. Yeah. But it's like, you know, they, they've – if you ask any of them, they'll always tell you that culture is first because they never felt white. Right? Like they – but – Maybe they feel it now, but they don't feel like it's a challenge for them to integrate, right? They they feel like everybody gets us. We're all we're all equal here, mm-hmm. and and it does happen. That's that's the whole goal of doing DEI correctly. Yeah, is that then 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 you break through these barriers of having to explain yourself and your identity all the fucking time, mm-hmm. and it can only happen when you have truly assimilated culture and values, and people can feel one hundred percent themselves, and that you know it's not easy. It really takes a top-down leadership approach to implementing, and Absolutely. that's what people don't want to hear. So they don't want to hear that that pensioner that's coming up <laughs> in the ranks needs to be, <laughs> you know, and yes. that's the truth. So, what what do you think the well? And I think you touched on it actually. What do you think the and this is off the script now because I'm like, oh, I got I got my dander up now. Uh, 
in, in terms of extending like in that office culture, right, in that organizational culture, what do you look at as ways to really, I guess, not incentivize, but I guess like compensate might be like the term or what have you that's outside of like, here's some money, thanks for a good job or what have you. But what are, what are those ways? Because you, you have people who will say like, no, I like to like amplify people. Here's people in these sorts of roles, things of that nature. What, yeah. what, what does Mason Dixie do? So first and foremost, we don't always recruit just based on history but more on potential proven attitude proven performance right like in general it doesn't have to be scripted to that job because that's another problem that happens is like okay there's not enough brown people who have been a senior executive yet so like if you're only looking for brown senior you're going to get four and those four people will only get the opportunities which defeats the whole damn purpose of inclusion right so for us it's always about like are they a great culture fit do they have the chutzpah to get through it right do are they provenly dynamic people right and then that basis begins with also letting them know and it's it's crazy because i actually have this conversation more with women than i do men but i literally tell all the candidates especially the ones i want i was like if you're coming here ask for what you're worth yeah don't just tell me what you made and because i wanted that when i went up my career path i didn't get that opportunity to be asked that but you know, I feel blessed that we're in a position that we can do that. So I want to know. I want to know that you feel happy enough quitting wherever you were and taking the risk to come to a startup, high energy environment, but feel like they heard you and that you are putting your money's worth into it too, right? And so definitely compensation. Like we try to, we don't we don't do it according to stats. We do it according to what that person thinks they're worth. One, yeah. um, we promote internally every time we can. Most of our executive suite is actually women and slowly but surely increasingly women of color which is really exciting yeah. um and then beyond just like compensation from a culture building standpoint right like we find reasons to celebrate every week if not every other week right and not just birthdays right like we are grown adults but mm -hmm. we love to decorate this place like a kindergarten <laughs> right like we, i mean it just brings joy right like people like see the hearts for valentine's day and the stupid st patty's day things and like people just you know, they love it. And then we also find other reasons to celebrate. Like the other day we had our biggest sales month ever. Right. So we just pop bottles in the middle of the day and oh, like yeah. had a cheese board out. Like, why not? Right. So like, those are things that help people just realize like, this isn't just a job. Like these are, these are individual successes that must be celebrated. And all of them are the reason that we have these celebrations because they're the ones that got us there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I also really like to amplify when, my people have done amazing things. Like I go to LinkedIn and I will shout the hell out of them. They're so embarrassed. I'm like a mom. They're like, why do you keep telling people that? And I'm like, cause you are amazing. You know, cause the, the, we have to get better at talking about ourselves. Yeah. And if you're not going to do it, I will. So. It, it's, it's big. And when, you know, you're supposed to treat yourself well and, you, and when other people are treating you well, especially in a place that ostensibly you're spending a third of your day at. Right. And, you know, that's you should feel good to come to work. And yeah, I, I will say, you know, working in higher ed, that's the what a day job is at. And. I, I'm new into leadership, right? Like, and, but I recognize I'm, you know, one of maybe two black guys in leadership in this institution, and I'm considerably younger than the other one. So that's a, a piece of it, right? And yeah. I just remember just chiming in with my background of being in a, um, a Spanish speaking call center, and it was a party all the time. And I was just like, yo, let's get it, let's do it. And just high <laughs> energy, because it's it's, it was a sales environment. Yeah. And, you know, I would throw in, I was like, We've had shifts in the number of people we're here. 
we've had people leave. We're into season three of COVID. I was like, can yeah. we start doing some of these cool things that we've lost just to kind of inspire goodwill and so on? And I was like, you guys have the money because you haven't done it the last three years. That's right. So how can we do that, that it's it's going to be a gain in productivity? I can I can if that's the way you want to look at it. Right. But it's like make people feel good about coming into the office. You have to. Right. I mean, people need a distraction too. distractions are part of the workday. I mean, if you think about it, like when you were working in those Monday desk jobs a long time ago when you were first starting out. Right. You left this college environment, or high school environment where you still had physical education and like activity and then you're told to sit at a desk for eight hours you're on amazon you're like googling like why (laughs) zebras have stripes like you're just like you're not doing work where if you're having a good time with you know your cult your work family your culture family and you're vibing and making jokes and like vibing with them you're creating a relationship that's going to make you better communicators with each other you're going to have each other's backs you're going to work harder to make each other better and that, that is effective use of time versus Googling about zebras, right? <laughs> like people think, oh, if you're not sitting at your desk, you're, you're not being productive. And it's like, well, that's not true. I could also bang out a shit ton more work in 30 minutes than most of my colleagues back in, you know, corporate America could in three hours. So should I be penalized because I am a faster, more efficient worker? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's why, you know, we also don't really believe in that. I'm like, you should be as productive as your projects need you to be. Yeah. And as 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 much as the company needs you to be outside of that, like I micromanagement is so dead. I don't understand that. Yeah. Like, I've been really like diving into these these things around efficiency and these things around oh. just kind of oh. shifting that paradigm of what we were taught. Like I, I, you know, went to business school, Morgan State, whoop, whoop. And, you know, yeah. you hear all of these different things on this is how you go about it. And then. For me, you know, I immediately knew that, no, this doesn't fit. This doesn't work. Mm -hmm. These ideas don't work. And there was just things I would buck against. You know, you find out the rules and then you start breaking them. So I I ask you this, um, what's a popular piece of entrepreneurial advice that you just like disagree with that you're like, you hear it all the time. You're like, no, that's not right. Mm. I don't really hear it as much as people do it. And a lot of people think that there's a formula for success. They always say that they they don't think that, but they actually do, right? Because then they'll start referencing shit that they read in the Harvard Business Journal, this thing they saw on CNN, those companies that they were impressed by on Shark Tank. They, they constantly seek a rubric for success. And it's debilitating because true entrepreneurs, right? If you ask Steve Jobs when he was in his garage, if you ask Bill Gates when he was tinkering with a piece of plastic and a a switchboard, like if you ask those dudes what formula they were following, I'll tell you that they're not going to have one, right? Like you, you have to have just like art, you have to have freedom of expression in business too. You've got to be free to do things, make mistakes, pivot, you know, solution. You've got to be able to break away from thinking, well, you know what? General Mills wasn't at this point when I was here. Oh gosh, I must be doing this wrong. Like, and you would not believe how many people get to that point and they quit. Like I'm in the consumer products world, right? And there's so many brands, brands uh-huh. that start and they have these products and they get to like 10 million bucks in sales and they just can't do it anymore because they were chasing some rubric of first you go to Whole Foods, mm-hmm. then you go into conventional. And then you go into, you know, like, and they're following this thing and, oh, and you should always raise capital from venture capitalists. And then they, you know, they do everything they think they're supposed to do to the point where they've burnt out all their options. Yeah. 
And it's like, didn't y'all go to business school? Like, isn't business school like one-on-one? Like when you run a business, you want to be profitable. You want to be healthy, cash flow, you know, all the little principles. And it's like, those go out the window because vitamin water sold and they weren't profitable. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, when you can get 50 cents to rep you at the height of his career, we could talk about vitamin water small, right? Like there's just so many things like that where I'm like, you need to beat, you need to, what is it? You need to dance to the beat of your own drum, right? Like you really need to figure out like, what is your process? How are, how is that sustainable? And how are you going to get there on your own accord? Like screw everybody else's formulas and you know, how this, this is how it's done. If that's the case, then none of us would be here. You know, millennials, Gen Z, we'd, we'd all be, you know, toast. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, as I was you know telling you before we got started, how long I've been doing this, I mm-hmm. hear so many different things. You need to scale. You need to do this. Your podcast shouldn't be more than this. And I was like, look, here's, Here's the thing. <laughs> and I and I try not to go left because you, you mentioned the whole beat of your own drum. I'm an Aquarius. This is what I do all the time. And I, he he's trash, right? But Joe Rogan does a podcast every day that's like three hours. So it's like yeah. this notion of a 20-minute podcast. And if that's looked at as the reference point of quote-unquote success, then – how does that work when you're telling me to do a 20 minute one or you need to yep. change your branding, you need to do this. You need to have your face on there more because you're more relatable as a black man. No, yeah. I, I know what works for, for what I'm doing. And you know, the, the key thing is if I got on here and I came to you like, hey, how's it going? I'm, you know, you're like, I got nothing to say to you. This interview is over. And, and right. you, you, it's like, where's the authenticity? Where's the real conversation? And ultimately, what people will say is, this feels like a conversation versus you got some standard things you're going to ask. So tell me about business, you know? <laughs> it's like, exactly. Exactly. So I got two more questions before I get to these rapid fire questions. And all the goodwill that I've earned during this podcast, it's all going to go away when I get to that rapid, those rapid fire questions. You're going to somehow hate <laughs> me. You're like, oh, get this out of here, <laughs> this jerk. Uh, so so I want to learn, I want to learn this real quick. Um, Walk me through that process of developing new products. Like I see, I see options out there. I was like, look, I, I need to get like a box sent stat. So tell me the process. Walk <laughs> yeah. me through that process of new products. So for us, the restaurant was a lot of inspiration, right? Like our first products were always the ones that sold the best. Um, so the biscuits came from that ideation. The sandwiches have come from that ideation. But on the on the flex, you know, there's sometimes inspiration that comes from blocking. Right. Like there was a brand that was trying to come up and take slots doing scones. And I was like, hold up, we can do scones better. We're going to do that. And then there was, you know, and then I heard Cinnabon was pulling out of distribution of their cinnamon rolls. And I was like, hold up, we got to get in there. You know, so there's times where you're like blocking tackling. There's times where you're just conquering. If there's an entity, you take it. Um, And there's times where you're really referencing nostalgia and what sells. Right. So it starts there. And then what we end up doing is we do it the way that it's supposed to be done. Right. So we start with our expert pastry chef. She makes products from scratch artisanally with the finest ingredients. And then we go, how much does that cost? And we're like, holy shit, that's too expensive. So then we try to figure out how to get it down. Right. And it's like tweaking um, the, you know, sometimes it's just down to brands too. Right. Like the types of ingredients that we're putting in, maybe there is one that's just as good at an industrial size. It's whatever. So we kind of tweak and tweak and tweak. And then when we work with our manufacturing partners, the bakeries, tested on the line in fact our pastry chef lauren is out of sight right now qualifying some scones and basically we 
basically have to break their process to make our stuff because that's the worst part about the food industry today is it's so optimized for manufacturing that it's not optimized for humans anymore. And I mean, we've broken butter cutters. We've broken so much machinery to make what we do because we want it to look like how Lauren made it, right? Like we want it to look like you made it, right? Right. Um, Which means that nothing's perfect and things are ugly and that's how we like it, right? I like that. Last last real question I had uh, have um, I read that your partnership with Ross happened on, while breakdancing. Tell me more about <laughs> yeah. this, and do you conduct all of your business on the dance floor? Because I feel like this you might be what? a thing. I could, I could. <laughs> um, so I, it was funny because we at the time he and I worked in the same commercial kitchen. So he had a business. It was called. Ironically, we always say if anything goes down and we have to like start all over again, we're going to use his trademark name and it was Cajun meets Asian. He's actually from Louisiana. So it's kind of <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> so he had a nut, it was like a, like a spiced crawling company. Um, and so he used to do his nuts out of the place and we would do the biscuits and everything. And then um, one day I stopped seeing him and, and then I saw him again on the street because he was, he was freelancing as a writer too. And I was like, so what's, what's going on? He was like, Oh, I had to quit um, the business because I became allergic to nuts. <laughs> so he couldn't do his oh, business no. anymore. And I was like, Oh, well, you want to come work for me? And he was just like, well, sure. And I was like, well, why don't you come to my 30th birthday party? We could talk about it there. And he was like, okay, great. So he shows up and like all of a sudden he and my, one of my best friends, Cheryl, are twerking and he's doing the worm under her in on the dance floor. And I was just like, that is exactly the type of energy that I want in my life every single day. Because, you know, business is hard. Entrepreneurship is hard. Yeah. And so many times people think they have to do it alone. But the sacrifice of that is someone to bounce ideas off. And it can't always be your spouse or your partner, right? It needs to be somebody who's in it with you. And it's hard to do that if they're just an employee. It really does mean that sometimes a partner is the best thing. And he's been an incredible partner ever since. So I think I will add to the list breakdancing as a requirement on uh, executive recruitment. Noted. Noted. I I will be (laughs) applying soon and getting my uh, my knees together. All right. So I got four rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Um, and you you know how these go. Uh, so actually, no, it's just three. One I'm already asked. Uh, okay. So what is your favorite beverage? Ooh, black coffee. You get it. So you get it. Uh-huh. You should go to you should go to sophomore and get the Rob Lee. It's uh, my brand of coffee there. Sophomore. Okay. Yeah. I will. Yeah. <laughs> the, the owner will be feeling really trolled. I'm on the menu now. We trolled <laughs> and we put me on the menu. My drink is there. And he's like, oh, I'm here for it. He's like, the fuck is this shit? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's the Rob Lee. <laughs> Don't forget to get it. Um, I love it. Okay. Window seat or aisle seat? Aisle. Uh, how do you start your day? What's the first thing that you do when you get up? Um, first thing that I do, other than uh, say fuck, <laughs> like shit. <laughs> I wish. No, um, I'm thinking first. It really differs every day. I think on weekdays I check my phone and my emails, even though I put it on not do not disturb on purpose. Um, but what I if I'm doing it right, if I'm doing my day right, I wake up and I do absolutely nothing because what I try to do, and it's funny because I. I heard that the um, CEO of Spotify does this too. And then I also heard that um, Bezos does this, which I thought was crazy. I I just thought I was always a weirdo and not a morning person Mm -hmm. because I really don't like talking to people first thing in the morning. But, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're a CEO, like it's never, he never stops. And so even into late nights, like I like working super late because no one's talking to me and I can focus. So same thing in the morning. I don't really like starting my day with chatter before 10 a.m. 
So I preserve that early morning between seven and 10 to do my own thing. I walk my dogs. I don't talk to anybody. I'll clean. I'll do random things in the house. Like I, I, I might read emails, but I literally won't respond to them because I think it's really important to give yourself some time to do nothing mm. and have quiet in the day. Some people like in the middle and, you know, like I've heard a lot of like CEOs like to do it at the end of the day. But for me, I think it's more energizing to do it first thing, to give yourself the benefit of enjoying waking up. I you agree. know, I agree with that. That's, that's great. And, and thank you for sharing everything. Um, I'm, that's all the questions I have. I want to invite you. I want to one, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you. And two, I want to invite you to plug anything that you want to plug. Um, this has been great. And uh, thank you for being so frank about everything. This is refreshing. Hey, authenticity and realness, right? So be more does. So <laughs> no, I mean, Hey, if anyone um, is interested in learning about where to buy us and where to find us, um, go to our website, masondixiefoods.com or follow us on Instagram at masondixiefoods. Um, read up on us. We're here. We're doing it. Support. Absolutely. So for Aisha Abulaisha, I am Rob Lee saying that uh, there's food in and around Baltimore. Uh, you just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.